Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. They've had to battle shark attacks, pollution, massive beach developments, and confusing light sources, but sea turtles are bouncing back. According to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, green sea turtle nests, which numbered less than 300 in 1989, were up to 39,000 in 2017. Other populations have experienced similar success. We're talking to two people who have been closely involved in the effort to protect sea turtles. Joe Widlansky, also known as Turtle Joe, is <laughs> vice president of operations for the nonprofit Sea Turtle Trackers. And Dr. Ari Fastukjian, senior staff veterinarian for the Florida Aquarium. And the Florida Aquarium Sea Turtle Rehabilitation Center in Apollo Beach opened this year. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Joe, describe to me one of your mornings. You're really dedicated to the, protecting the sea turtles. Tell me what you do. Um, very early in the morning before it gets light, um, I get up and I go down to the beach. We cover all of St. Pete Beach and drive along the high tide line uh, looking for sea turtle tracks from the night before where a mother turtle had come up. We do the whole stake them out, rope them off, get measurements, GPS, et cetera, and then we pretty much just wait 50 to 60 days for them to hatch, and we keep an eye on them every day to make sure nobody's messing around with them. So you're the ones who put those familiar, like, wooden stakes with yes. the orange tape around Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and, and what does the track look like? Just kind of like um Tractor track, just like a bulldozer or something. Uh-huh. They're actually really big, you know, because the turtles are 250 pounds or better. Amazing. Yeah, they make great big tracks. So Florida Matters' Kathy Carter recently went on a tour of sea turtle nesting sites along Lido Key in Sarasota. She speaks with Melissa Bernhardt, a senior biologist with Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium with Moat Sea Turtle Conservation and Research Program. Now, what do scientists have to say about the numbers of sea turtles going up? I think in general, scientists are cautiously optimistic. We know that there are a lot of factors that play into these nesting numbers every year. That's the best way to get an estimate on the population level, but it's still only looking at females, and so we don't know what the male population is like at all. So if there are more females to males, then you're going to potentially get a bunch of infertile nests, which those numbers are not great. And then there's the issue of the, the lag time between nest to maturity and so we're looking at 30 years ago numbers basically at this point um, because that's how long it takes them roughly to reach maturity so in order for them to be nesting they've got to be at least 25 to 30 so hard to say what's going to happen in the next 30. Now even though the numbers are good what are some of the new issues that are coming up on the horizon that we didn't have you know years ago that might endanger the sea turtles and turn this number back around to um, numbers that would you know not be good? 
Yeah, a lot of the issues have to do with the loss of the habitat of the beach, beach hardening and erosion. A lot of people understandably want their homes to stay where they are and the beach in front of it is getting smaller. So when these turtles come back 30 years later to the beach where they thought they could nest, turns out there's just a seawall there or something. Not always, but often they're having to adapt to find different places to nest, which if we keep hardening the coastline, those options get smaller and smaller. So I think that's the newest threat that the turtles can't have a concept of. They don't have that ability to really think logically and find another spot. They just say, oh, this is a seawall. I'm going to lay an egg here. And then, yeah. Additionally, even back a mile from the beach with coastal development, the lights are an issue. Yes, the lights are an issue for the turtles getting back to the water and for the hatchlings getting to the water initially. If the lights are bad enough and the hatchlings all go the wrong direction and none of them make it to the water, then that's as bad as not even having the nest there to start with. Our numbers have been going up exponentially, especially in the last 10 years. So the work has changed in that we can't keep up with the turtles. So we've had to cut back on some of the data for some of the nests in that way. Now, what do you mean you had to cut back on the data? We used to monitor every single nest in its entirety for its whole incubation, but now we're at the point where we're doing a subsample of them. They're all staked for protection, but we're not fully collecting data on all of them because we'd be out there at night still when the turtles start coming up again, so we had to cut back a little bit. Now, back in the 70s, sea turtles were really in critical danger, and sea turtles are still a threatened species. Do you see a time when they might be taken off the list? It is possible. Um, It does have a lot to do with what their population numbers are doing, and the best population estimates come from the nesting numbers. But there are still a lot of threats to them that we can't foresee how that's going to affect. We're losing a lot of habitat, which is critical for their nesting. With global warming, there's a whole how is that going to affect these temperature-dependent animals. And so I think there's still going to be a lot of caution, even though the numbers seem to be increasing. So Ari, what do you see as the biggest reason for the resurgence in some of the sea turtle populations? Well, I can say it's definitely exciting to see. Certainly, it looks like some of the changes that we made, even as much as 20, 30 years ago, are actually starting to have an impact. I think there's a couple things people need to keep in mind. One is that a lot of those bigger issues that bring turtles, uh, individual animals, into us, those are still ongoing issues. And so what we're seeing is an increase in sea turtle rehabilitation cases. I think the other thing is that people need to keep in mind there's a lot of other factors uh, influencing the number of turtles that are showing up on beaches. For instance, green sea turtles only come to lay eggs every two or three years. And so the number of animals showing up on a beach in one year may be really exciting, but doesn't necessarily give you the entire picture. But compared to what it was in 1989, 80 times as much, that gives you some idea (laughs) that the population is resurgent. They've seen uh, similar numbers with leatherbacks. Um, Joe, what do you think is helping? I think when the whole sea turtle nest monitoring operation, uh, everybody was kind of separate doing their own thing till 19, late 70s, early 80s, when FWC became the umbrella under which we all operate. So now there was a consistent monitoring going on, and it helped. We were going out and having people fix lights and doing all sorts of things. Bottom line is more babies were getting to the water. More babies get to the water, the more that grow up. 
Uh, so all of the groups in Florida have a great deal to do with why the population is increasing. So one thing that we used to hear a lot was that the lights, um, the lights from the development, which, you know, really came on in what, like the late 80s, 90s, really saw the beach developed, the baby turtles, they would hatch and were they were used to seeing the moonlight shining off the water, and that's what they were supposed to go for. But the lights from the condominiums or the hotels were confusing them. So hotels and condominiums actually started putting in special lights, I guess, or protectors. And Ari, has that been working? It absolutely has. Um, and I think the time frame that we've been looking at this over, it's kind of hard to show up and tell someone to fix all the lights in their building and make them turtle safe. But over 10, 15, 20 years, knowing what we know now, when you bring in uh, new lighting or you're building a new facility, it's really easy to keep that kind of stuff in mind. What does that mean to make it turtle safe? So there's a whole list of criteria you can actually find on the Fish and Wildlife Commission's website. And so I think a big chunk of the success here is people like Joe getting out there, educating the public so that people are aware that this is a thing that you can do that may have an impact that wouldn't necessarily be apparent to you otherwise. So, Ari, you're a veterinarian. You actually work on sea turtles once they're injured. I always thought that once a turtle's shell was cracked, that was the end. Do you save them? How does that work? So sea turtles are actually pretty robust as individuals. Uh, We see a lot of things like boat strikes, uh, fishing entanglement, uh, red tide, cold stun. Uh, These are all cases, if the turtle is able to get to our door, a lot of times they just need a lot of supportive care. They do things slowly. It's a bit of a joke. They are turtles. They do things kind of slowly. But if you can get out in front of the problems that they're having, provide them with the support they need, it may take months, sometimes even years. But sometimes we can actually turn those animals back around. You know, some of these animals require major orthopedic surgery with screws and plates. You might have to keep them out of the water for a period of time to let everything close in and heal. There's also a lot of animals that we're able to rehabilitate, but that have injuries that are so severe that they're not releasable, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that um, you know, if you have an animal that's lost two flippers to an entanglement injury, that animal may survive but isn't going to be able to go back out into the wild. So you'd keep, you'd keep them at the aquarium or do you um, put them down? Under like, the ub- umbrella of FWC, if we have animals that can give a, have a good quality of life and can serve as ambassadors mm-hmm. at facilities like ours and others, Florida Fish and Wildlife will help to place those animals in a long-term home. So it's amazing. I mean, at the Florida Aquarium, the Turtle Rehabilitation Center that opened in January in Apollo Beach, over $4 million. Joe, why? Why? Why sea turtles? We don't see horseshoe crab rehabilitation centers. Why do people care so much about sea turtles? Um, Because they're cute. (laughs) They are. (laughs) That's certainly one reason why. But they're an apex animal on the food chain. Loggerheads especially eat a lot of things uh, with shells on them from crabs to conchs and spiny lobsters, things like that. So they help keep populations of other animals in check that would otherwise run rampant over the ocean bottom. So an apex animal in the food chain would be at the top, sort of like Florida panther or Florida a black panther. bear in, Absolutely. on the land. I think to Joe's point, anytime you, I mean, we all know at this point, maybe 20, 30 years ago, this was kind of new, but we're aware of the unanticipated effects of removing an apex predator from the food web. We're seeing things like blooms of jellyfish out there, a lot of the invertebrates that, that Joe referenced. We know that green sea turtles, for example, play a really important role in the health of seagrass beds. 
green turtles trim seagrass at a particular length. That's just how they've evolved. And they're the only animals that can really do that. Um, if seagrass is left ungrazed, it will grow long, it will fold over, and it will actually shade its own structure. And so green sea turtles are really important to healthy seagrass beds. Loggerheads eat everything. Uh, <laughs> stuff that you would not think is edible, sea urchins, these guys eat them for breakfast. And loggerheads will come in and they'll crush everything up. They'll leave all the scraps. There's, there's whole ecosystems that rely on those guys going out there and opening up those feeding opportunities for the rest of the food web. And loggerheads are the most common uh, turtles nesting in Florida. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. By far. Mm-hmm. More than all the other sea turtle species combined and then double it. <laughs> Is that what you – so on our beaches in the Tampa Bay our area? Our beaches are primarily loggerheads, but you don't have to go very far south, maybe 20 miles, and you start getting a bunch of green sea turtles nesting there also. And the other species, leatherbacks? Uh, on the east coast, leatherbacks, although we did have four on the west coast this year. Very, very rare occurrence. And those turtles are huge, right? Yeah, they yeah. can get upwards of uh, eight-plus feet long, uh, over 1,000 wow. pounds. So you've both been probably watching the beaches really closely, in a way differently than most people do. And I'm wondering how you've seen things change. Population. Partially, it's because we're such great beaches, and every year Dr. Beach comes out and says one of our beaches is like the best. So naturally, the people are drawn to come and check it out. More population gives us more issues. It's hard for a turtle to even come up and nest without somebody either disturbing it or at least seeing it uh, nesting. Some people are really good about it. Some people not as good. It makes it hard for the turtles. There's people out there 24 hours a day on the beaches nowadays. Have you seen some changes as well? I have. I'm obviously not spending anywhere near as much time out on the beach right. as, as Joe and his team. What I can say, and I volunteered when I was in high school at the Florida Aquarium. Um, I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau. You hear all the, all the messaging about you know saving the environment, making sound choices about how you're living your life and the impact it can have. And I think one of the one of the sparks of optimism is the fact that things have changed in the last 20 years. I think the health of the bay. I think an assessment just came out recently saying that we're back to I think pre 1980 or 1970s levels in terms of seagrass coverage and pollution. I think the things that we're doing while we're here in the moment may feel like we're not getting any headway, but long term, these do make a difference. I I think things have to have changed with the beaches, too, because we didn't know anything, it seems like, in the 70s or the 80s. The lights, you know, were wrong and were hurting the turtles. People were putting um, seawalls everywhere. They were cutting down the mangroves. They didn't understand the importance of dunes. All these things seem to have changed in the last several decades. I know there's a lot more people out there, but are the beaches themselves looking better? Yes, they are looking better. We have a whole group of people that go out every morning and pick up the trash on St. Pete Beach. Oh, get rid of some of that plastic. Plastic. Um, We're involved very much with the no straw thing. So we got a bunch of restaurants and stuff on the beach Mm -hmm. to get away from single-use straws. And uh, so we're having a lot of success with that. The one change, it's the thing nobody wants to talk about, you know, and it's uh, the rising sea level. We just lost half of our nest, and we didn't even have a storm uh, last week just because the water came up a foot. We're in 
you know, 20 years ago or 15. Now, that wasn't the case where you would have nests get flooded on a windy day. And when they flood, that kills the eggs? Not necessarily. Um, if they're inundated for more than several hours, and it depends on how far along they are in the incubation period, mm-hmm. then it could. And we won't know till it's time for those nests to hatch. Mm. But I can tell you right now that, you know, there's a bunch of them that are not going to hatch. Because they were underwater. Because they were underwater, yeah. Yeah. And and it's becoming a a yearly occurrence where before you would need a tropical storm or something to raise the tides up that high to influence, you know, the nests. Mm -hmm. And I know nobody likes to talk about it, but it's a very important part of what's happening. You're you're nodding, Ari. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, we've finally gotten around to the place where we know – how to protect beaches from future construction. But in a lot of places, as those beaches start to shrink, we can't march up the beach and give those animals more space. It's a finite resource, um, right. and it's got to be shared by people and turtles. When You, you mean because there's already buildings there, right. so you can't move the dunes back. Right. Um, Joe, I want to know more about what you see out there on the beaches. So the, the female turtles come in generally at night to lay their eggs? Yes, generally speaking. Are you ever there then for that, or you you get there early in the morning? Occasionally we do see a turtle that's still up on the beach uh, finishing up nesting. We see several uh, every year. So they kind of hollow out a hole, a shallow hole with their flippers? Not so shallow. How many feet deep would the hole be? Approximately the length of my arm. Yeah, about three feet. Okay. But it's not very wide at all. It's only, you know, six inches, eight inches wide, the opening. And then she'll put 100 to 120 eggs in that hole. Okay, cover it back up. Cover it back up and and, goodbye. And head back. And that's the last she sees of her babies. Yes. Okay, so then how long does it take for them to hatch? It's 50 to 60 days normally. You know, we check them every day, like I said, to make sure nothing disturbs them. Then we hope we did good enough job with the lighting that when they hatch, they just all will head down to the water now. It's pretty dark in a lot of the areas now, so uh, we're pretty happy with that. Good. So I have seen, I've never seen it in person, but you do see these docu- these heartbreaking documentaries where the seagulls are just picking off the baby turtles and then things are eating them once they get into the water and crabs are grabbing them. And you think, how in the world do any of them make it? Those are uh, different species of turtles that actually will hatch in the daytime, like a Kemp's Ridley turtles hatch in the daytime. Olive Ridley's, I would imagine, do the same thing. But our mostly our loggerheads, it's at night. Night. And the birds are gone. Yep. So they don't really need that much protection except maybe the crabs. Um, the ghost crabs get one here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not really there when they hatch. Uh, FWC has new guidelines out the last couple of years. In the old days, we used to be able to literally have somebody sitting near the nest so when it hatched we made sure all the babies got to the water oh you Uh, would so you would kind of walk them down to the water something like that but those days are over and uh, fwc just wants it to be as natural as possible so we give them a, a lot of leeway on their own if we get calls about turtles that are uh, disorienting then we will definitely go out there and uh pick up as many as we can find 
and then you know make sure they get down to the water. But otherwise, they're, they're pretty much on their own. So Ari, out of 100 eggs, say, how many are going to make it to adulthood? It's a pretty small fraction. One in a thousand. I wouldn't say one in a hundred. It's more like one in a thousand. Really? We'll yep. make it. Uh-huh. But if you, you are producing, uh, say, six million loggerhead hatchlings in, in one summer, the state of Florida, that means 25 years later, you still have uh, 6,000 new turtles coming in to nest. And that hopefully is enough to offset the loss of turtles in that past year and that the population will increase. So one in a thousand, while it sounds like, oh, that's so low. It does sound low. Yeah, it does. But it it is enough to uh, continue the species. So you're saying that maybe one in a thousand turtles make it. Ari, what are some of the reasons for that? Well, certainly the first couple years are really tough on them. We all know about the marathon race down the beach to the water. What we don't see as much of is that then those guys swim for miles through open water to get to the seagrass and algae mats out there uh, floating on the surface. And they'll sort of, these are like living nurseries for all sorts of, uh, of juvenile ocean creatures. And so they'll live there in that environment for a couple years. We usually don't see them pop back up again. So uh, we'll see, like Joe said, disoriented turtles, hatchlings that get turned around on their way to the water. Other than that, most of the animals that we see on the rehab side are going to be probably three to five years of age before we, we get eyes on them again. So these are just floating seagrass floating on the surface of the water, like out in the ocean somewhere? Yeah, these guys are out in, in deep water, open water, offshore, and the algae and seaweed will stack up in accordance with the currents, and that's where these guys will make their home. There's a lot of sea life there for them to feed on, lots of small shrimp and crabs and fish that all use this space as a nursery. That sounds so amazing to see. Yeah, so they'll spend a lot of time out there, and then when they're a couple years old, they've got the strength to sort of move back inshore a little bit and start to hang out in places where, unfortunately, there's a lot more uh, human interaction. So that's when we'll start to see animals that get hooked by fishermen at piers. We'll start to see them uh, getting hit by boats. Those are a lot of the cases. Red tide exposure, that's primarily an inshore issue that we deal with. Um, And how are they hurt by red tide? So for sea turtles, they're obviously they're swimming in it. Unlike a lot of the other uh, megafauna, you know, dolphins, for example, they're big enough, fast enough, they're able to sort of get out of that area. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not impacted by it, but certainly you'll see the population move out of the way as that happens. Sea turtles aren't quite as cued in, I think, to those kinds of signs. So they're swimming in it. They're getting uh, respiratory injury. They're getting eye injury. Uh, they're also ingesting it. And it is a potent neurotoxin. And so probably the biggest thing that we get them in for is that they're pretty much unconscious. Wow. Um, So we get them in not just because they're unconscious, but because while they're floating there, they're at the mercy of anything that comes along. So they'll get red tide affected, and then they'll get hit by a boat, chewed on by predators like sharks, pecked at by birds, uh, and then they wash ashore. And then what do you do? (laughs) Well, it's, um, it's a lot of TLC. Um, So these guys may be pretty much non-responsive or comatose for a couple weeks, usually got a whole host of other problems. They've probably aspirated water because they weren't aware enough. Sea turtles are remarkable. They can float at the surface completely unconscious and they'll still lift their head to take breaths. 
but we do see them ingesting or aspirating water and getting secondary infections. The rest of it is really keeping them in a warm, comfortable environment and supporting them uh, with fluids and nutrition until they're able to clear the toxin from their body uh, and start to swim and take over those kinds of functions on their own. Do people still eat turtle soup? That was a big deal in the Keys at one time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, not legal in the United States. Um, turtles are federally protected. And certainly in other countries, especially some third world countries, uh, the harvesting of turtles for food is, is still a pretty common practice. It was a really important food source for a long time. It was, especially when, again, the numbers could sort of support that kind of, that kind of use. Mm-hmm. Um, another common practice, in addition to harvesting adults, is that there is still a lot of places around the world where egg harvesting, poaching of the nests is an ongoing problem. Even here in the States, I believe, in the last year or two years, people have been caught harvesting sea turtle eggs. It's a considered a delicacy in some cultures. Given how much pressure these animals are under when they're doing well population-wise, you can imagine the kind of impact that harvesting those nests could have on the population. Where are you seeing that, that they're eating the sea turtle eggs? Uh, I believe it's pretty common in some uh, Asian and maybe some South American cultures. But uh, the bottom line is that it's something that's protected. It's illegal. And so you're going to find places where there's a market for it. So you're saying that it's happening in Florida? Uh, Yeah, I believe there were some reports of people being arrested recently uh, in the last year or two in possession of of harvested sea turtle eggs. Primarily on the East Coast, down towards Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, because they sell them there. I had not heard of that. I knew they people ate sea turtle, you know, meat, but oh, oh. the eggs are a delicacy in some cultures. So before I wrap it up, I just want to say to you, I mean, looking forward, I think that there's good news right now. It's so nice to hear that the numbers are looking up. But what do you see as the biggest threat going forward, Joe? That's a really good question. Um, continuing impacts from humans as more and more people move towards the beach. You got more and more boaters. You have more trawlers out there, long-line fishermen. Yeah, and humans leaving their garbage around and all that kind of a <laughs> yes. thing. What do you see, Ari? Well, I think it's kind of twofold. It's, it's encouraging uh, a lot of the messaging, a lot of the awareness, especially with the rise of social media. People know about some of these things that we can control And I think it's encouraging to see this kind of population shift, but it means we need to push even harder because the other half of this equation is a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily have direct control over. Things like uh, habitat loss, things like increasing storm activity, sea level rise. This is a, a species, the numbers are looking good right now, but they're incredibly susceptible. It doesn't take a whole lot of a major impact to set them all the way back I mean, uh, loggerheads are very common here in the state of Florida, but people may not be aware that that's a a substantial chunk, probably 20 or 30 percent of the world's population of loggerhead turtles is here in the state of Florida. And I think 90 percent of the ones in the United States are here in Florida. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so something like a major storm wiping out a year's worth of nests along one coast is going to have a dramatic impact that we won't see probably for 20 or 30 years. Well, keep up the good work. This has really been interesting. I think the, the work you both do is really fascinating. Joe Widlansky, also known as Turtle Joe, Vice President of Operations for the nonprofit Sea Turtle Trackers. Thank you, Joe. No, thank you for having me. And Ari Fastukjian is Senior Staff Veterinarian for the Florida Aquarian. Thank you, Ari. It's been a pleasure. 
And thank you for joining us. To reach us, you can email us at floridamatters at wusf.org or tweet us at Florida Matters. And Florida Matters is available as a podcast. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Richard Jimenez. This week's show was produced by Steve Newborn and Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.